Is it SIFs or is it SMB? This week, we bring in the expert that can help answer that question, as well as talk about new features and the goodness of network-attached storage for Windows environments and cluster data on tap. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. I am Justin Parisi. I am replacing Pedro Aero, who has decided he would like to go somewhere else. Sitting next to me is Glenn Sizemore. We're not doing Glenn Greening because I have no idea how to do that yet. <laughs> it's okay, man. It's okay. I am super excited. Uh, before we go much further, I just want to pause real quick. Uh, I am super excited to have you join us, Justin. You've been on the show before. I think it's an important element for us to have a core on tap guy uh, represented, you know, in here as we have these discussions from day to day to day. And you are a core TME, right? You're on that team. So uh, I think this is going to be awesome. Uh, in addition to your day job, you also happen to just be a fun guy. Uh, hey, so this, this should guys. be an enjoyable recording or an uh, enjoyable time going forward for everybody involved. So thanks. Thanks for agreeing to do this. <laughs> Listeners, we're going to go through a little bit of a transition. We had developed some muscle memory. Pete and I have been sitting in this studio for better part of a year and a half, so the show may may change a little bit. We'll see where it goes, but don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm not going to try to change it too much. Um, any changes that happen from here on out will probably be accidental. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm down with that. Yeah, So, uh, and I just wanted to say I'm sorry I was not able to be here for Pete's last episode. Uh, it's just that time of year where I had to travel. But, uh, yes, Justin, thank you. Really appreciate you volunteering to come on. So uh, you don't get a pay raise out of this. Uh, what? There, I'm out of here. Yeah, there, there is no uh, extra benefits right We're here because, well, we all like staring at each other across the tables and, uh, and hearing each other. So Yeah, before we got in here, we actually sat across from each other for about 15 minutes and just stared. Yeah, you got to warm up. Right? You got to get those eyes used to, used to meeting. Yeah. Is it yeah. okay that I admit that we just kind of cuss at each other right, to warm our vocal cords up? We do, we do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's an yeah. old theater trick. Um, you know, yeah, lo- lots of lots of good accentuated uh, uh, consonants. In did there you learn that at Juilliard? Uh, it, no, no, <laughs> I did not. <laughs> All right, uh, that's Andrew Sullivan, of course. You recognize him, and also today we have in the studio Mark Waldrop, the SIFS TME. Say hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Saw that one coming. Mark, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for the listeners? What do you do here at NetApp? Uh, my name is Mark Waldrop, uh, technical marketing engineer at uh, NetApp, and uh, kind of handling the Windows file services uh, implementation, so or, or solutions uh, in terms of tech marketing. Uh, think of the stuff like home directories, Active Directory implementation, general file sharing, things like that. Cool. Awesome. So I'm the NFS TME, so we're natural rivals. We did have to break up a couple of fist bites we beforehand. Did. <laughs> we did. We did. <laughs> All right. I guess before we get started, let's talk about what everybody's been up to uh, since the last podcast. So, Andrew, you went to OpenStack Summit, right? I did. I was in uh, Japan, right? Japan was a great time. So, yep, if yep. anybody hasn't listened to last week's episode, check that one out with, uh, who did we have on? Oh, we had was Mr. Dave Kane. Dave Kane. Yep. Yeah, Dave What's... Kane was on. So, got to hear about our uh, OpenStack on FlexPod TR. So, that's a really, really awesome one. Not not a lightweight one. I think he said it was something like 370 pages. Yeah, it's not a lightweight stack. No, yeah. no. So um, you said last week. That might not actually be last week in terms of recording. Yeah, this is that weird time bubble yeah. that we live in and don't even try to hide from the listener because that's right. just too hard. So episode <laughs> yeah. 13, I believe, is the episode you're looking for if you want to check that one out. 
good call. I forget that occasionally with things like, I don't know, Insight getting in the way, uh, yeah. these get rearranged. So Yeah, in- Insight. Yeah, that's coming up, isn't it? When, when, are we, when is everybody leaving for that? I leave Saturday. Saturday. So, yeah. Saturday. Saturday as well. I'm leaving Friday because I thought it'd be fun to go there early. I was going to go there early just to kind of walk around. Then we got told we were doing a demo. I was like, oh, I guess I get to work on a demo now. So I'll be doing that. So if you're interested in it. Are we actually going to be able to talk about your demo this time? No. Um, okay. So that's contingent upon the release of whatever software might, it may or may not be in. So okay. we, have to, we have to wait. Um, but there will be a live demo. It'll be in booth C8. We do know where the booth is going to be. So if you want to come check that out, we'll be doing some live demo action. Well, actually, I think that I think we would have been doing live demo action at Insight. Would have, would have, we, yeah. This yes, is, we have already done said live yes. demo action. Yes, it was awesome. And no, we still can't talk about it. No, yet. we can't no. talk but about man, it. But man, when we can, you guys are going to love it. Yeah, I'm going to really be excited for that. All right, so Mark, you're here for SIFS, um, or is it SMB? What is it? Ah, great, great question. Uh, commonly, I get asked that quite a bit when I speak to folks or you know doing presentations at Insight. Um, as a matter of fact, my Twitter handle actually is SIFS or SMB. <laughs> uh, I, I, at the end of the day, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me what you call it. But folks change, you know, have changed over the years is what they refer to SIFS or the uh, the file sharing protocol for Windows. Um, SIFS traditionally now is kind of thought of just as the protocol in general, um, not any individual particular version. And then when you talk about SMB, they want you to refer to it as the protocol version. So using some sort of number behind it, if there is a version number uh, they're referring to. So by the end of the day, it doesn't matter to me. I care about the protocol in general, whether it's you call it SIFS, whether you call it SMB1, SMB2, or SMB3. So SIFS was actually started by IBM, right? I mean, it wasn't Microsoft thing originally, right? Invented by IBM? I don't know. I don't know the history. Do you? Yeah. I, I, I do not know the history. I mean, the only time I farthest back I talk about it is as far as kind of the Windows XP days. So let me tell you about SIFS. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it actually was invented by IBM, I think in 1980-ish. And then I, I learned all this from Wikipedia, by the way. Okay. Nice. And then Microsoft actually appropriated it and, and kind of did this weird thing where they went from SIFS to SMB to SIFS to SMB. That's where the confusion comes in because Microsoft couldn't really decide themselves if right. it was SIFS or SMB. Now we have SMB. There is actually a difference between SIFS and SMBs. There's a blog by Stephen Foskett. He does an excellent job of describing the differences between SIFS and SMB. The contention is that SIFS is this old, archaic protocol that's even worse than SMB1 which, you know, believe it or not, there's something worse. (laughs) And now we're all the way up to SMB3. So let's go ahead and talk about that a little bit, Mark. So tell us a little bit about SMB3 and what new goodness is there, especially when it concerns cluster data on tap. Yeah, so uh, good question, Justin. You know, SMB3, and and I'll kind of step back a little bit too because it might help folks to kind of give them a little bit historical perspective of the protocol in general. Microsoft was really, really fantastic at at coming out with file sharing and and the SMB protocol uh, back in the SMB1 days. And it was great for what it was meant to do. I mean, it was really meant just for basic file sharing. But the protocol really kind of suffered from a, a lot of different things. Um, it was very chatty, uh, oh, yeah. number one, uh, significant command set, uh, hundreds of commands. I mean, there were dozens just to open a file, for example. But it was not very resilient as well. Um, yeah. And so as the protocol kind of evolved, you kind of jumped into the SMB2 days. Uh, the SMB2 kind of started uh, getting a little more resilient. The command sets got smaller. Um, you went from hundreds of commands to, you know, maybe, what, 20-ish. I think it's right around there, 25. Um, and so the protocol got slimmer, uh, more efficient, and then also got more resilient. Uh, we kind of brought in uh, durable file handles, um, which they have their own limitations as well. But giant leap forward. And then to kind of jump into the question you asked is more about the SMB3 space. That's when uh, the protocol really made a big leap forward to start expanding the workloads that uh, customers can consider using. 
for the longest time, uh, SMB was really just a project share home directory kind of protocol. Now uh, it's evolving into kind of an enterprise protocol that customers are running, you know, big enterprise applications, think SQL Server and Hyper-V. And so some of the, the features there that you think about um, or stuff like persistent handles, uh, lock maintenance and stuff that we do at NetApp. Um, for example, like we do some lock mirroring to kind of uh, give some resiliency to the protocol. So things like that. So one of the things that SMB3 has is a feature called continuously available shares. Can you tell us a little bit how that works underneath the covers? Yeah, certainly. So at NetApp, um, and the information data on tap uh, and clustered on tap is just a share property. Um, you know, you build your shares out the same way you would in, in any kind of file sharing environment, and you turn on a particular share property. Um, it's called continuously available, uh, ironically enough. Um, and that start, starts turning on a lot of the kind of the goodness that you think about with the protocol. Uh, it turns on persistent handles, turns on a feature called witness, um, which is kind of a, a file sharing cluster failover feature. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about witness. I love witness. And what we do, um, and I kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, we do uh, a lock mirroring with continuously available. So if you're kind of familiar with cluster data on tap being a scale and architecture, a two nodes uh, clusters that are strung together with kind of a back-end network, we actually do some lock mirroring between HA pair nodes. So when a client actually opens a file uh, over an SMB3 continuously available share, we actually mirror lock state to its partner node um, and that HA pair to ensure continuity and sort of, and when there's been some sort of service impacting event. That sounds pretty awesome. I'm debating whether or not we make this just like all the way down in the weeds and actually talk about like client IDs and, and, and all that stuff. But it's probably we probably shouldn't. Um, that's the type of SMB stuff that, that I started to nerd out on when it came to Hyper-V. But uh, you don't really, there, there's so much client stuff that we need to get to, so we probably don't have time for that. Yeah. But the two big ones that I do think we need to touch on, in addition to just the base continuous available mirroring. Witness you know, and auto-location? Yeah, witness and auto-location. Yep. I mean, they're just, in my book, SMB3 plus witness plus auto-location services that's where ONTAP starts to just get turned to 11 from an efficiency perspective. The way that we can build the system so that it's basically just self-orchestrating and self-managing uh, is unlike, well, actually, the only thing that comes close to it is VVOLS. VVOLS is the only thing that offers the same paradigm. Yeah, well, absolutely. We can talk about those. And this is one of those things that Microsoft owns the entire protocol. And I've said this before, right? That's a huge benefit for them because, well, okay, we don't have this feature. We need it because it's important as we move forward with Hyper-V or as we move forward with Exchange or a SQL Server or pick an application. Well, they can add it in. They own the stack. And things like continuously available shares and all of that make it that much better, right? Things that other vendors don't have the advantage of, right? So you have to implement it with out-of-band type solutions. So in an attempt to short-circuit this conversation a little bit, I'm going to try to summarize this. And this will also be fun for me because I get to get my pitch critiqued by the guy who actually knows what he's talking about. I always love when I can get Mark to sit in on one of my sessions just because like, he'll be sitting over on the side and I'm going through the deck like explaining how this stuff works and I'm just glancing at him through the corner of my eye just like, am I getting this right? <laughs> <laughs> when, he, when he starts shaking his head and like has his head, you know, his hand on his, I haven't his got that and, yet. Yeah. But if I ever saw that, I swear I would just stop the session and be like, "Hey, Mark, can you just correct me?" Like, because I don't <laughs> want to put out bad information. This is basically what, what's going on. Uh, when when you create an SMB session, or when you create an SMB connection to a file, uh, you are not just connecting to that file. First, you have to establish a session to the server. You have to authenticate, and you have to have an existing session to actually do those operations against, those 20-some-odd commands that are inside the command set. With SMB3, when you make that connection to the file, instead of what we traditionally used before, uh, as Mark said, we create what's known as a persistent reservation. That persistent reservation 
the way that we persist it is by actually storing it inside the NVRAM, inside the HA pair, so that it not only is it protected and battery backed and all that fun jazz, it's also replicated to the partner. So in the event of a total failure on the node for any reason, the partner has the exact information that it needs to resume services for any clients that are already at their connection. So how is that for a summary, real quick explanation of what SMB3 is doing? Uh, fantastic. I'm going to probably use it. Okay. Yes! <laughs> I, I'll, I'll take that. So with that base, now let's get to the fun stuff. Let's talk a little bit first about Witness. My elevator pitch for SMB3 over the past two years has been the performance and availability of block-based protocols with the, the manageability of a NAS-based protocol. That's my two-second answer to why SMB3. It's all the performance and availability you usually got out of uh, iSCSI or Fiber Channel, but it's the management paradigm of SIS or NFS. So it's, it's kind of a best-of-both-worlds approach. But Witness is the thing that makes that true. So do you want to talk us a little bit through about Witness and, and what it's doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, Witness is, is fantastic. You know, the, the simple one-sentence thing that I generally give is it's, it's faster failover for a NAS-based connection. When a client makes a, a connection to the share, it obviously has to register uh, its ID and connection information. We build locks and all that stuff. But in the event of some sort of uh, service event and that connection goes away, we have to have a route to send them to. And what Witness does is Witness says, well, hey, don't wait for your connection that disappeared uh, to come back. I've got one being hosted on the partner over here. But the client doesn't wait for its network connection to come back. It actually uh, is being told that there's an additional location it can connect to and drop off its connection over the first se session and move over to the new one. That sounds a lot like a Lua. So it's very similar. So the difference would be with a Lua, you have multiple paths active to the, to the target. Right. And Alua is communicating what the preferred path for the traffic would be. With Witness, although there is an alternate path to the storage, you're not actively using it. You're only using the one connection that you have. But in the event of a failure, there is a pre-negotiated, formalized communications path where the storage uh, server can proactively reach out and notify the client you know, in a full fan-out manner, it's not a one-off thing. It's it's based on a subscription. So when the client connects, it subscribes to a witness event handler. And then in the event of a, of a failure, the storage just kind of sends out an event saying, hey, partner A is dead. I don't know why. It doesn't matter. Everybody reconnect to the following IP address. I've got your files, right? Yep. And all the clients just proactively go, oh, okay. And they reconnect in on that address. Oh, it's more connection-based, kind of like NFS referrals as opposed to PNFS, which is more like a loop. Correct, yeah. yeah. Yes, PNFS, I yeah. brought that up. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and it all works kind of seamlessly in the background. There's no knob to turn, there's there's no option to switch. This is something that the client and the server negotiate. And like Glenn was saying, it's a subscription-based model where client makes the connection and he asks the initial source that he's talking to who can monitor this connection. And the source tells him, oh, it's my HA partner. And then he briefly makes a connection to the HA partner to actually make that subscription. Uh, notification request to say, hey, tell me if there's actually an issue so I don't wait around forever. Going back to when I, we were talking earlier about the protocol itself and what it was kind of designed to do, you know, if you think about it, back when it was just generic file sharing, uh, project shares, and home directories, if that connection kind of disappeared for a brief period of time, it, they can probably sustain that type of movement. But when you begin talking about an enterprise-based application that really can't wait, yeah. even milliseconds sometimes, you have to move that connection faster. And so that's what Witness gives you. Are we seeing applications that are taking advantage of that, uh, particularly outside of Microsoft's own stable? 
Right now, there might be, but I know that even between not just NetApp, but even Microsoft themselves kind of really stick to the two primaries that you'll see for the most part right now, which is your Hyper-V and SQL Server. So workloads beyond that, that right now, I'm not aware of. And this is a point of confusion that a lot of people have. You know, they look at it and they just, they do the base human being thing. You know, SMB 1, 2, 2, 1, 3, right, 3, 1. Well, I want the biggest number, right? Biggest number's got to be best. It's not how it works. You know, this is a very layered architecture. It's a very layered protocol solution stack. The continuous availability functionality and the persistent reservation functionality was designed for business critical uh, applications for the SQL servers and the Hyper-Vs. Like, that's what it was built to do. It was not designed for, like, your office files, right? Excel has an offline caching mechanism built into it to handle those instances where the SIF share drops out for 15 seconds while we're going through a reboot. SQL does not. If the, the database files for SQL Server are not available, you're not processing transactions. If your, your underlying share goes out, the client application will cache for the 30 seconds it takes for that to attack and reconnect. So it's two different workloads. You know, there's overhead associated with that persistent reservation. It's not free. You've got to store it somewhere. In our case, it's eating up NVRAM, which is a very valuable resource. So what are the... Uh, are there specific advantages or disadvantages to using SMB3 versus, for example, CSVs with Hyper-V or SQL Server? That is a fantastic question, uh, and, and it's one that I actually get answered or asked quite often. Based on you know where we sit with the solution stack, uh, where, what we have from an availability perspective uh, and a feature set perspective, they're both actually incredibly attractive. There's some really, really cool stuff inside clustered shared volumes in Microsoft's implementation of a clustered storage file system. But you really can't get around the advantage of SMB. I mean, SMB allows you to run a true shared nothing architecture. You know, we talk about microservices. Let's break apart the architecture. Let's bust apart these monolithic application stacks and get everything independent. SMB does that at an infrastructure level. You now have this abstraction layer between your data persistence tier and your your business critical application tier and that translation layer is SMB and it allows you to completely split the physical compute from how you store the data and you can plan and manage those as two completely different islands right and have different paradigms and different teams and different methodologies and everything just works with a CSV world well, your Hyper-V design has to align to your LUN design. Your cluster uh, size and your cluster layout are going to dictate what you can and can't do because of the, the requirement for every node to see it. So, Mark, I'm interested to hear about auto-location because I have a feeling that that's where a lot of these benefits become apparent with larger that's, CDOT clusters. That's where Alua comes in. So, you go ahead and keep your PNFS, buddy. We've got an Alua ripoff. What? So auto-location is simply the, the ability to kind of put a client closer to their data. You know, if you think about it again, as a scale-out environment that cluster data on tap is, if you have a, I don't know, let's just say an eight-node cluster, and you've configured networking resources across all eight of those that are tied to the SVM that's serving SIFs, and then you've architected your environment to where any one of those eight lifts could respond to, or networking resources can respond to a request, the client could get put anywhere in that cluster. Um, so, like for example, let's say the client through routing gets kind of pushed over to eight no, uh, node eight uh, in the cluster, but the volume that they're accessing that the share points to is on node one. 
Yeah. What we would call an indirect hit, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah you, you have the concept of a direct connection where you're talking directly on, you're on the same node that owns the volume that your share points to, which is a direct connection. Indirect is what I just explained, where you kind of get routed to another node through DNS routing, but your data lives on a, the, a different node, the one you got routed to. And what all location basically says is, is, hey, I'd be glad to service the request that you're asking for me, but I'd probably be best to send you to the node that actually owns that data. You know, while there's probably not a massive performance penalty for being an indirect connection, but it's much better to give you to the node that actually owns the data and actually reroute you there. And that's kind of what auto location does. It says, hey, node eight, I'd be glad to serve your data, but node one actually owns all of it. He actually also has a resource that I can send you to and then provide details for that client to go to. My favorite part about this is how the dev team implemented it. So under the covers, this is all just DFS. It's, it's the distributed file system yep. inside Active Directory. So like literally a Hyper-V server pops up and says, I want to power on this virtual machine, connects with its server ID to the share, you know, using constrained delegation to double hop over the storage target. And when it arrives, ONTAP looks at that Hyper-V server and says, hey, pretend I'm a DFS share. I'm about to redirect you to a different location. And Hyper-V is just like, whatever, man, protocols, standards, I, I got this, and it just works. It's brilliant. I love it. Fun fact, the uh, auto-location piece, auto-referral stuff, is actually borrowing the PNFS stack a little bit. Is it really? It is. It's I'm not surprised there. I was waiting for Justin to chime in with PNFS that PNFS for the win. <laughs> It's very, very beneficial, like I said, right? I mean, it's why not put you closer to your data and, and put you right where your data exists uh, rather than uh, kind of making you traverse a, an unnecessary hop uh, in the cluster. One thing to know about uh, with auto location is it only happens on uh, file opens. So when you make your initial connection, we can redirect because you're authenticating to the share, and that's the opportunity to redirect. Once you have a SMB session active, well, you're just throwing work through that session. The question then becomes, well, what happens if I do a vol move? Uh, and, and this is one of the reasons why I love this so much and why I think it's so cool. Uh, because what you can do is, in a Hyper-V sense, in a Hyper-V context and or a SQL Server context where they're clustered, all you have to do is just do a live migration of the virtual machine and or uh, fail over the service inside a uh, uh, failover cluster manager. And in both instances, you're dealing with moving a workload from one node to another, which will actually trigger a connection in a new session, uh, and it'll be an opportunity for ONTAP to rebalance. So you can vol move a, vo a volume with you know a thousand virtual machines in it, uh, trigger a live migration, uh, just to, to reshuffle your VMs a little bit, and then everything will be rebalanced and and direct connection. So it, it's very very attractive from from an operations perspective. My understanding of storage vMotion in the VMware world works very similarly in that at the conclusion of these of the actual movement of the VMDK, it does a vMotion back to itself in order to reestablish the session to the new file. Yep. Very, very similar. Is there actually a workflow automation workflow for that? I mean, it, so so what you're telling me is I have to do a vol move and then I have to go kick off something manually. But no, you don't. You don't actually really have to. Uh, you know, Mark spoke to it. We've tested it. Like yep. an indirect hit. You know, there there is additional latency, but it's insignificant. Uh, the the bigger risk there is that you're putting traffic on the cluster interconnect network, and if that ever does get saturated which doesn't happen very often, but or has. Or no. You know, I, I spent five years in support, and I never saw a performance case because of that stuff. It's yeah, just, I, don't, I don't think it's a real problem. It's something yeah. we hit in QA, and it's something we can, we can simulate. So it is possible. I guess my point more of was if you wanted to make it easier, yeah. you could have a single button push where you have a workflow that kicks off and does Absolutely. the ball move and yeah. then does the migration. 
Yeah. So workflow automation affords you that sort of flexibility. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You, you could totally do that. The point I was trying to make, because this is something where I've not explained that in the past, and then people are over, you know, they're, they're in their imagination. They're like, on taps, magically, like, redirecting these file handles. How is it doing that? No, it's not. It's, it's just DFS under the covers. It's a really, really, really clever implementation uh, leveraging existing solutions and standards. If you want to kind of dig way down in the weeds, depends on how far you wanted to go, uh, this actually happens at what's called the SMB Tree Connect uh, phase. It's the it's the actual connection to the share that occurs. The file opening occurs after that. So it, it gets to that stage of the actual SMB protocol process, and then we stop and kind of redirect as needed. And then they'll pick up after that and then start opening files. Yeah, this is where my layman's understanding and Mark's actual understanding start to conflict a little bit. But that's cool because I'm learning stuff. So um, when I'm doing all this auto-location stuff, am I able to leverage Kerberos or am I doing NTLM? What, what's happening there? Great question, Justin. So it is something you want to be aware of. And we make a connection and probably should cycle back real quick and actually explain Kerberos and NTLM in like a couple of seconds here. That's a good call. Yeah, good luck. Uh, yeah. Go. <laughs> Ten <laughs> um, seconds, go. It's, yeah, uh, I'm already a lot wasted too. Um, it's, uh, it, it, they're, they're just authentication mechanisms, uh, the way in which you prove your identity and who you are. The use of either one of them is done based on a client-server conversation. Kerberos is, is not necessarily guaranteed to be used, but it's more likely to be used when you're accessing over a fully qualified domain name. NTLM is 100% is guaranteed to be used when you're using an IP address access path. Um, so if you go to a share and say backslash backslash, okay. you know, fully qualified domain name slash share name, Kerberos can be used if you use backslash backslash IP address. You're guaranteed to be using NTLM. And without going into a whole lot of detail, the semantics around that are more of, of security and kind of historical preference from the terms of a protocol perspective. But with auto-location, if you come in using a fully qualified domain name uh, on the back end, the actual DFS referral happens as an IP address, and that gets funneled back to the client as backslash backslash IP address in some path. That causes the client to flip the authentication mechanism to NTLM. Now, that's not a problem at all because the authentication process will still continue. Where it does become sort of a concern or an issue is if your environment is trying to kind of get rid of NTLM. So that's something to be aware of if you choose to use the auto-location features. It does pass back. Um, an IP address, which causes the client to switch over to using NTLM as its authentication mechanism. Yeah, but again, like this is why I made that reference back to DFS, right? This is a Windows thing. If you're not a Windows guy, you might look at this and be like, oh my god, NTLM is terrifying. Yeah, NTLM is terrifying, but let's remember, you authenticated with Kerberos. You authenticated with Kerberos and then got redirected. It's fine. Like th th This is a Windows mechanism. Well, Microsoft will eventually get, all, get NTLM completely out of their stack. And when they get it out of their stack, we can get it out of ours. It's, it's but fine. right now we're in this, this bridge. It's fine unless you're blocking NTLM. And there are companies that yeah. block NTLM. Yeah. So if that starts happening, you break, and then you're like, what's going on? And that's why it's happening. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and that's, you're starting to see that a little bit more now, particularly even, too, as companies start phasing out older versions of the SMB protocol as well that only support, like, you know, NTLM-based authentication mechanisms. Yeah. So that brings up another question from my point of view. Are there, so SMB 2 or maybe 2.1 introduced encryption, right, for the protocol and all that. Are there any additional security features that 3.0 introduced, or was it mostly centered around that continuous availability? So SMB 3 is where we kind of got the yeah. encryption piece. Most of the work starting from SMB3 on, and there are obviously sub-revisions of the SMB3 protocol, uh, most of the stuff in SMB3 and beyond was uh, either resiliency or performance for the most part. I mean, the encryption was obviously very security-based, and it's something that we actually support now as well. Uh, but most of it is uh, depends on what version of the sub-version of the SMB protocol, 3 protocol, because there's like 3.0, 3.0.2, 3.1, yeah. 3.1.1. Um, there are various features that are there, but uh, encryption was one that came with uh, SMB3 uh, as a base protocol. 
it's been one of the challenges, like working in the Microsoft space these uh, over the past like three, four years. Every time Microsoft drops a major version of server, uh, or need, or even a major update of server, it feel, it seems like we get a completely rev uh, a, a complete rev of the SMB solution stack, and it's man, they're moving fast, really, really, really fast, and 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 it's good and bad, right? You look at it and you'd be like, man, they're adding features, right? But they're also having to re- go back and redo things, which which from from kind of where we sit in the solution stack, it's like, well, you know, why don't, why don't you figure out how to, how that's going to work, and then we can implement that and get that integrated. But we're not going to go back and write this thing nine times as you keep changing your mind. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to kind of something I was I wanted to kind of circle back to because uh, there was, I think, a comment earlier about uh, the different kinds of uh, applications and workloads that utilize the protocols. I wanted to make sure I kind of cycle back real quick um, because a common confusion point with the SMB3 protocol is that any and all workloads are supported to be continuously available and non-disruptive. Um, and I want to uh, make sure we kind of cover that because that is a, a very common misconception. Microsoft and NetApp both kind of have the same stance uh, when it comes to what things you can support continuously available and non-disruptive over the SMB3 protocol. Yep. It, it doesn't mean that others won't work. It means what's supported, and there's a reason behind that. So today, I mentioned Hyper-V and SQL Server are going to be the two workloads that you're going to see supported and really driving the SMB3 kind of workloads um, right now. And the reason that that, that is this case is, has to do with uh, the state of lock churn. Um, what happens when you open files and close files when it comes to a lock, uh, an SMB file lock perspective. You know, a Hyper-V opening up a VM, a SQL Server opening up a database or a log file, they're traditionally going to put a lock on a file once right yep. when they open it. I think Glenn mentioned earlier something about Excel files, for example. Um, Excel files, you can just from cycling through different cells in the spreadsheet, can generate a different lock uh, on the file. And if you think back to what I talked about when it came to what we do with lock mirroring, uh, that's a lot of lock data to churn to mirror between HA pairs. So right now, the the SMB3 continuously available non-disruptive operations up and running all the time uh, scenario is Hyper-V and SQL Server because those lock state maintenance is a known state. We know what those are going to look like because they're generally done once, maybe twice. Versus, you know, there's what, four of us in the room here. If we all open up files on a home directory, um, we're going to have different use patterns to do that. And that's a lot of different locks to maintain. So I'm I'm a Linux guy, right? But historically, so, so. So, so I'm all about playing a stupid user when it comes to SMB and SIF. So are there day-to-day administration, day-to-day usage, are there things that I need to be aware of? In other words, will it auto-negotiate the correct protocol if I just enable S- all of the SMBs on my, you know, my share coming off of CDOT, or do I need to specifically enable, disable certain ones? No, you could. You, it's it's all client client server negotiated. Um, you know, a client and its initial connection essentially passes across all of the protocols that that they support, and then the server chooses the highest one that it has supported and enabled. Um, I kind of like use the example uh, at a presentation at Insight that if you're in a foreign country and you kind of don't know what language someone that walks up to you speaks, yeah, but you know four languages, you might say hello to them in four and hope that they responded one of them. Yeah, um, that's kind of how SIFS works. It says, "Here's all the ones I support. You choose one that that works for you, and then respond back to me." So I do the NFS side, but I also deal a lot with the SIFS side because we do multiple protocol stuff. So if you're an NFS guy or a Linux guy, keep in mind that these protocols, at a very high level, do the exact same thing. They make a communication to the client and server. They figure out the versions that are supported. They figure out a connection, and they figure out how they're going to authenticate. That's it. Beyond that, you know, that's all proprietary, you know, the different conversations, different types of conversations. 
but at a very high level, NAS in general does the exact same thing. So if you're a Linux guy and you want to use SIFS, don't worry. It's going to be very similar. It takes a little bit of a learning curve, but you can do it. Actually, it's just, in my perspective, it's just like removing some steps. You just don't, it, it, it is identical. You just don't have to mount it first. You just you, you skip the mount step and you go straight to the access step. But you do mount because you do a whack whack UNC path or that's a true. map network drive, right? So I mean Yeah. That's at a very high level, identical. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. You know, perhaps another thing to, to tack on the back end of that uh, discussion, uh, because this is another point of confusion for, for a lot of customers, you know. There is a difference between having a continuous available flag associated to a share and running the SMB protocol as a server. And, and specifically what I mean is uh, if you have uh, Windows 8 or Windows 10 clients uh, or even servers out there on your network that are accessing those departmental shares, uh, even though that they don't have the continuous availability flag set on them because they're not, they're not made for that, you know, A, it's not supported by either Microsoft or NetApp for that use case, uh, B, that's not the use case that it was built for, they will still auto-negotiate it up to the SMB3 protocol. Uh, and they'll still get the advantages of, of the protocol itself. The ones that I always think of, Mark, and I'm sure you've got the laundry list on the back of your hand, but the one, the big one was the, the increase in Kerberos ticket size. Prior to Server 2012, there was a problem with, with really massive organizations where you had thousands of groups and people who would be nested in many groups uh, where the Kerberos ticket was getting truncated and, and not all of your group membership was able to be communicated in, in that token. Lesson B3 increased that size so we could put more groups in there. So even without the CA share, you're still running that higher protocol. Yeah, correct. It's just that the CA share turns on some of those non-disruptive features. But yeah, you're right. You get, you get the exact uh, benefits of some of the other features just because you, you know, you're running the SMB3 protocol. Um, it's interesting you talk about the Kerberos ticket size because one of the things you do start to see now is as organizations are, are, are growing and growing and kind of um, you know, either acquire or consolidate uh, various business units into one, uh, that Kerberos ticket size becomes a big, big, big oh, yeah. issue. And not only does it truncate groups, but it can actually cause uh, user authentication issues where the ticket grows so large that it actually cannot even be processed. And so that's where st uh, stuff like compression issues for the Kerberos ticket feature that we haven't talked about today, but one that's really interesting that NetApp was actually, we used to be the only one, I think we might still be, but we were most certainly the first outside of Microsoft to support, which was DAC, um, dynamic access control, and if you're not familiar with that, that's a fantastic uh, change in the Microsoft uh, permissioning structure. Let's um, let's talk about that because that was a the, that was an internal decision. Like we 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 made the decision that we looked at at everything that was in uh, the the backlog of things that needed to be done, and you know made the proactive decision that we want to go implement Dackle because because this is a really cool technology that customers can use. Can you tell give us a, a little bit on on what that provides and and how it works with OnTap? Yeah, yeah. So certainly, um, you know, it's it's really a means by changing how users authenticate uh, to uh, shares and, and things like that. If you think about the, the traditional model in the kind of the Windows file serving space, it's always been user group um, based, right? You're either in this group um, or you're in that group, or your your user itself, user account itself, was defined to get permissions. For those of you familiar with Active Directory, when you kind of right-click on a user account, go to Properties, and you have uh, a, you know about a dozen or so tabs now. I don't know. Yeah. Something around there locked. Turn, yeah, turn on advanced mode. It gets up to like 30. Yeah. Well, you can now use properties that are actually on a lot of those tabs with DAC once you configure it and set it up to actually permission accounts. So if you think about uh, what that allows you, you can actually style start permissioning data based on, uh, I don't know, a geographic location. Yeah. Um, uh, their job title. 
whether they're a full-time employee, a contractor. Um, you can even do it based on the machine they're logging in from. Uh, so you can start using uh, kind of what are called user and device claims, uh, more metadata about accounts, and that dramatically changes the level at which you can permission data. Um, it also helps reduce kind of uh, group churn uh, and token bloat, if you will, from a Kerberos perspective, where you start having to build more and more groups to define different permission structures that you want you know, as companies grow. Uh, an example I like to use is uh, companies that have like business in 100 different geographic locations and have a bunch of different branches in all those geographic locations. You, know, you, you, can, you could easily get into the hundreds or thousands of group combinations that you need to permission data. That can significantly reduce that because you can start using that geographic location. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Geofencing of data. I find that like just ultimately fascinating uh, and, and so intriguing. It may be a little bit to do with my background, but the, <laughs> the idea of being able to, to go ahead and fill out that metadata. The same way, listen, IT does this all the time, right? Every single major enterprise, uh, well, not every single major, but most, most enterprises, new employee comes in, they log in, one of the things that happens in the background is Active Directory automatically maps the printer that is closest to that person. That is all done through sites and services using location data and, and, and just correlating that metadata to automate the, the end user experience, right? The idea of being able to apply that to data access, I think, is, is just, I, I want to play with it. I don't have a use case where I need it. But it's like that—that's—that's that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, and, and I actually am seeing kind of an increase, you know, from folks out in the field actually asking about it. Um, you know, I've had a few over the last few months uh, that talk about it. As a matter of fact, you know, it's, it was a kind of a focus of of some of my insight presentations uh, this year as well. Something similar you can do with with that if you're not using dynamic access control or you don't have support for it. So, cluster data on tap itself has export policies and rules and. Generally, they apply to NFS, but you can also use them for SIF shares. Yes, you can. So you can actually designate subnets or IP addresses or even net groups for access to SIF shares if you so choose. Yeah, something I frequently do in uh, larger, more secure environments is, is recommend that customers whitelist their Hyper-V hosts. Uh, in, in addition to the constrained delegation, not only yep. do you've got that, that Active Directory authentication, but now ONTAP is also now going to go through and add an additional layer of security where even if the account is compromised, it's just another layer you've got to be able to jump over. You know, you've got the service count not good enough. You're going to have to be able to spoof the IP before we're going to actually give up the data, um, which, you know, admittedly is possible, but really hard, right? Correct, yeah. Um, one other thing, Mark, I feel like we've got to mention, just because I think you guys uh, don't, don't celebrate this enough, uh, again, with my background, you know, just the, the types of things that I think are kind of interesting. I think data on tap may be the most secure... Uh, operating system on the planet when it comes to, to SIFs. And particularly, one of the reasons that I make that statement, and I feel comfortable making that statement, uh, is because our auditing implementation is no joke. Like, I don't know of any other vendor that, that goes to the extent that we go to in, in auditing. Like, our when you turn on SIFs auditing inside a Windows world, it just starts, like, creating log files. When you turn on auditing inside Data on Tap, uh, it is now a full-blown security feature, and if we are unable to secure the audit record, we won't serve the data. We will actually like close access off if we can't uh, if we can't log who's trying to access it and who's trying to do it. You know, that that's a level that I don't know of anyone else going to, which, which I think is is really cool. Yeah, and it's, and absolutely, and, and the, the the great thing about us is we do an extensive amount of auditing by default. 
Um, you know, there are some, sometimes a couple of use cases here and there where people want a, a little more granular and they kind of go to a, like a, a third-party file policy solution. Um, but the good thing is we support a significant amount of auditing uh, right out the gate, and most folks actually, that's what they use. Um, you know, you do have some things here and there where they go to like the, the file policy or what we call F policy yeah. uh, solutions. But you're right. I mean, we actually do block and do not allow access if the audit logs cannot actually be uh, uh, written to. And those, those audit logs themselves, they become EVT files. So you can read them right off your Windows box. They're per perfectly supported, right? Yep. Yeah, they're, 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 they're EVT files, though, that, that can include NFS connections, though. So that, that's kind of fun. It is fun. And that's how they actually implement the NFS auditing piece as well. I mean, they actually borrow on the SIFS auditing yep. piece. Yeah, yeah, and the great thing is, is we actually the audit logging actually occurs. It, the consult the logs actually consolidate down to a single node, um, but there's actually the capability we can actually lo log separately outside of that node, and then actually everything gets consolidated, written down as part of a process that gets written to one single log file. So you can actually have auditing occurring um, across you know multiple uh, nodes or volumes, but it actually gets written down to that one file, so that everybody's not having to scour and search across multiple places to actually get access to data. It makes it real simple to point that Splunk security server right at your ONTAP cluster and be able to start data mining, you know, client access when, when bad stuff happens. Uh, very quickly get to what happened and why. In addition to our event auditing, we also have antivirus support, don't we? Absolutely, we do. Um, you know, very familiar to the seven mode implementation, if everybody kind of knows that, that solution. Uh, it's, it's an off-box uh, implementation. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you are an existing seven-mode customer running uh, your, your off-box antivirus, it's really just a minor upgrade to that uh, application to support the cluster data on tap implementation. And then you have to install a small little kind of like uh, almost like a redirector client uh, that kind of intercepts the calls. Uh, the big difference between the cluster data on tap solution in terms of an architecture um, is in the seven mode implementation, the data on tap uh, SIF server talks directly to the kind of the antivirus engine, if you will. Uh, in the cluster data on tap uh, implementation, it actually talks to this redirector that you have to install, and then that redirector communicates with AV. But functionally, uh, it's still the same. Uh, well, and, and I'm going to give us a pass on that because with the storage virtual machine construct and the, and the fact that we could have, you know, 10 different SVMs on a cluster that belong to 10 different domains with 10 different AV cert, we needed a level of abstraction. You needed something to go between. A absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and that's the, the, one, the, the piece of reason why I mentioned it. It was just because most folks uh, don't understand the need for having that additional piece. And that's yeah. exactly what you're, you're right. That's exactly why. And, and it also lends the same type of security that auditing does where if you can't scan something you don't get access. Correct. Absolutely. You know, we don't want someone to, you know, inadvertently write a, a, a file out there that actually contains a virus. If it actually, if the AV server says it's got some something wrong with it, then we're not going to write it. Or if it's already there, we'll quarantine to make sure that's actually not accessible after that. So I'm going to, I'm going to change direction on us a little bit. Uh, so Microsoft recently announced that they're supporting Red Hat Enterprise Linux and Azure and all of that other stuff. So I think it's been supported for a while on Hyper-V. But as Glenn has talked about on multiple occasions, right, it's it's not your daddy's Microsoft. And they've done a lot of really interesting things, like, well, they open source.net. Um, is there any indication that these SMB3 features will be, if they're not already available, and I honestly haven't checked, but they will be made available um, faster because of those efforts? So I don't know about the Linux, uh, the, the Linux stuff. Uh, SMB is still a protocol that, that Microsoft owns. Uh, it's it's one of the very very few that's that's part of their their major strategy from like a server perspective that actually isn't an open standard. But but there, that's kind of like you know S3 being a standard. You know it, S3 is not a standard. It's a proprietary implementation. But but it has won 
you know, it won the market. So therefore, it, it's practically a standard um, since it's it's what everybody uses and has to, to program to if you want to interoperate. SMB's in the same boat. Uh, Microsoft still owns it, belongs to them. They, they get to drive it and move it wherever they want to move it to uh, for, from a long-term development perspective. Um, but but it, it, it does exist outside of the Microsoft ecosystem. For instance, Max. Samba. Yeah, yeah no, but, well, Max, it's not Samba. Ma- Max are running the Cif oh, yeah. They're running yeah. the SMB stack. You know, a, a uh, I think it was like Snow Leopard or something that actually implemented SMB three, so it can use those that, larger tokens and, and whatnot. That's actually very important to point out because when you do connect to an SMB share, you need to specify that it's SMB because if you don't, it will use SIFs and it'll feel really, really slow. Yes, yeah. talking about the, from the Mac perspective. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, the interesting thing about the Macs is, is that Macs, I think years ago, actually did they did port Samba in themselves. Yeah. And then I think around, I think it's around the SMB two time frame, they actually rewrote the stack and it's their own. Um, it's it's not something else that they've actually tried to port in. It's, it's their own that they've written. And so you, you are starting to see a growing trend of, of Mac clients out there. I mean, we have our own kind of interop matrix for them. Um, and it, but years ago, it wasn't it wasn't kind of a, a predominant one, but you're starting to see more and more folks that are actually using a Mac as, as, a, as a file share uh, client. Well, the, the reason I ask that question is if I am one of those developers who's writing a .NET application inside of Linux, right, can I... Does .NET natively facilitate an SMB data connection, for example, or am I relying on the host OS for that? Uh, no, you're relying on the host OS for that. You're calling your so the you're, you're calling a .NET API that that under the covers is invoking like a 132 API on a Windows server, which is actually doing the work. Um, as I understand it, that's part of that 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 port and that open source. Not all the classes are coming over, right? Like yeah. You know, it's gonna. It, it'll actually be interesting. I haven't dug into this, but but now you gave me homework. Like I want to go just for curiosity's sake. Like, what is file.io? Like, what is what does that namespace look like in in the open source .NET implementation running inside like Linux? You know, does that translate down into uh, a a uh, Linux file system command, or is it like API not understood? <laughs> you know. <laughs> I didn't mean to give you action items coming out of a yeah, podcast. We'll, yeah, uh, we'll we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. It's it's it's. That that open sourcing of things, and particularly the the not trying to make Windows uh, everything to everyone, uh, letting it be great what it's great at, and and embracing community where it makes sense uh, for for alternates. You know, that I, I recently listened to a, 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 a podcast with Ben Armstrong, the, the Microsoft uh, Hyper VPM, uh, and he was actually talking about containers uh, and and his view of containers, uh, and and they initially. When they first had their very first meeting with Docker, they set up the meeting and and they anticipated going in there and being like, "Hey, Docker, uh, we're doing this thing called Windows Containers. We're sorry, but we have to do this for our customers." They thought that it was going to be very confrontational and like competition. They, they were going in there as like a heads up, like, "Hey, FYI, we're we're doing this." Um, the Docker guys surprised them because they turned around and they were like, "That's awesome! You should totally do that. We want to work with you." And and the Microsoft team was uh, apparently you know listen to the story you know we're 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 like hell yeah let's let's work together let's make this work um, so they're not trying to be everything to everyone there are instances where SMB is a fantastic protocol but let's not forget the Linux world already has PNFS that thing's pretty damn good too right yes <laughs> so you know it's 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 
it, it, it's really uh, Windows also has NFS. In case you're wondering, uh, yeah, yeah, it does. It's that every time somebody tries to yeah. use that, though, and, it's, and none of us can keep a straight face now that you've said that. I, even I, myself, I've <laughs> had EVCs with customers who they come in and they explain their their architecture. I had to bring Mark in for one of them uh, about a year ago. The, the poor, poor customer they were using. Uh, they were using the the NFS services inside Windows to try to work around Samba, and and we basically just had to sit down and be like, you know, ONTAP does all of this for you. You're making this way harder than you have to. Just set the security style to NTFS and create an NFS mount, and ONTAP will make it work. Yeah, and, and I don't mean to make it sound worse than it is, right? Yeah. It, it serves a purpose, and I, I don't know. I look at it from the perspective of, well, Cluster Data ONTAP does all of those protocols. Why would you, you know? deliberately make things harder than they need to be. I mean, there are corner cases where applications need the specific Unix extension piece that run only on Windows. So I, there are instances where you need Windows NFS, um, but not always. I was unaware of that. I did not know that there were actually applications that only worked on Windows NFS. I didn't either. Um, well, I wouldn't say it works on Windows NFS. They have, they have purchased the application. They have the license. They've put the money into it. It's running on Windows. They don't want to go buy it again. Ah, okay. Right. Gotcha, so, gotcha. so when did we, uh, did, was it 2012 they added AES encryption, or was that already present in 2008? I can't remember. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. We actually just started adding it in the uh, 8.3, 8.3.1 yeah. time frame uh, in terms of uh, making it available for Kerberos ticket encryption. Uh, the server and supported it. We just had to start supporting it, and that's around the 8.3, 8.3.1 time frame. I seem to remember that the 2008 and prior would default to RC4 or HMAC. And then later would we could use AES, but that might have just been us. So the interesting thing with with all of those technologies that that is occurring, and you know, it has been occurring for a while now, is is that yeah, it works, but there's there's still a a really big challenge across the industry to uh, be able to run inline encryption on this data and and still be able to to scale and and not just have to throw obscene amounts of hardware. You know, a lot of the, the later CPUs uh, themselves actually start including the the kind of the, the uh, yeah, instruction sets to to allow you to do kind of it right directly on the CPU as well. Um, you know, that is something that we're, we're investigating as well. Um, we've done for some of the stuff like SMB signing. Uh, we've used some instruction sets there. Um, so, I mean. It, and any challenge whenever you add any sort of security mechanism or any sort of additional overhead that has to be done to uh, the processing of, of a data packet before it gets sent to a client, obviously it adds all kinds of overhead uh, to a uh, process. So, yeah, th this is uh, th th the reason I bring it up, and and you know we're we're throwing little tiny stones. These aren't these aren't massive stones. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear. In case any listeners are, are, are questioning, I'll just go ahead and uh, I'll just come out and say it. I think what Microsoft's built is is uh, top notch. I'll put it up against anything on the planet. I regularly do that with accounts all the time, <laughs> you know. And and we're wildly successful all over the place. It's it's an awesome stack, um, but there there is some some growing pains that 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 come through with with some of this stuff. So there, you know, th this is one of those points of contention uh, on some things. You know, Mark, you and I uh, often find ourselves in these corner case. You know, when you take a look at the large SMB implementation, you know, like shared VHDX, that's one that comes up sometimes. You know, people are like, "What about shared VHDX?" It's like, well, you know, this this is an edge case thing that's intended for this one use case. It is an incredible amount of work for us to support that. You know, th it worked for Microsoft. But but when you look at Microsoft Solution Stack, it it's a really distributed stack that that consumes a large amount of of 
you know, Git kit. You know, they've got the storage spaces stack, which is, you know, its own set of kit. And then you've got the dedupe layer, it's a different set of kit. And you've got Sophis sitting on top of all that, which is a different, you know, they're building what we just turn on, a feature we turn on inside a storage virtual machine inside a pure Windows world using traditional services is quite the endeavor. It's actually like an involved thing to get that thing built in and performing. I think it is incredibly uh, impressive how simple we've been able to make SMB services because it's not simple in Windows these days. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going to go with it too. And, and you know, glad you kind of went there. I mean, I just look at the history of what NetApp was and, 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 is, and, is, and where we're going. Um, with, with uh, kind of the SMB workloads and what we're doing, we, we do now is fantastic. Um, you know, it's it's been our kind of our, our bread and butter over the years. Oh yeah. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, that's what we did. That was our one big thing we did when we first kind of came out as a company. Oh yeah, that was totally our thing for yeah. like a decade. That's yeah. what we did. Yep. Um, so I mean, and and, and where the protocol is going, and if you think about it, um, you know, as was mentioned a couple of times, I think uh, throughout the discussion today, is that you have kind of the performance and, and the capabilities that you get in a, in a SAN environment with very simple and easy to manage uh, uh, protocol. I mean, it's, you know, if, if, if you're already familiar with how to manage a standard file share, you can administer and manage a, a enterprise level application running over the same protocol. You know, I mean, so you, you, you gain a lot of, of uh, synergy with work that you're already used to doing. Um, you know, if you think about it from a, just an ease standpoint of, as a protocol, um, you know, you're not maintaining a separate environment, uh, you're not maintaining separate switches, you're not maintaining separate, potentially separate people adminning an environment. So when you think about it just from a cost even perspective, it, you know, running uh, applications over a NAS protocol is is very, very cost beneficial for a lot of folks. Now, I say that, and I don't want the folks that are listening to this that might go, well, I run my NetApp SAN stuff too, or my NFS stuff, right? We, we do both. It's just a matter we like to give you the option of which one works best for you. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm pretty definitive. Uh, long-time listeners to the show will know, but but I'm... Pr- if if you come to mo- if you came to one of my sessions last week at Insight, uh, there was no ambiguity in what I told you, uh, particularly for partners. Uh, I have no patience for partners these days that are pushing customers into one protocol or another. The customer should deploy the protocol they're they're comfortable with. You know, we there 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 are differences, but those differences aren't aren't great enough for us to steer the conversation. Like if the customer wants fiber channel, give them fiber channel. They want SMB, give them SMB. There, there, there aren't reasons for us to tell them no, yep. right? And, and there are reasons why a customer would choose one over the other. So I know we're, we're running really short on time at this point. We've, got, uh, yeah. we, we've had a really good conversation here. So I've only got one last question. Will I ever be able to have an SMB or a SIF share without joining a domain on cluster data on tap? At some point, yes. Um, it's, 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 uh, that, Roadmap. That's, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That, that that is absolutely a roadmap uh, item. Uh, it's 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 a common ask. It's a common question. There obviously are use cases for it. I mean, you get a lot of customers that deploy applications that run in either a DMZ or an environment that they they don't want to put AD in, or they don't want to expose their internal AD environment to to something that 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 they don't. You know, I don't not say trust, but um, that they want to have a little more control over, so they don't want to ex- expose it. But yes, that is something that's a roadmap item, and it, it is something uh, you should see down the road. In the meantime, you could always create a Samba server and then NFS mount to it. Just saying. Slap yourself. <laughs> <laughs> saying that out loud. Someone's going to do that. <laughs> Poor guy in support's going to have to help him. Yeah, it's a Samba server outside of us. We don't care about that. We mount to <laughs> NFS. We mount NFS. We don't care about your Samba garbage. All right, awesome. So, Mark, thanks so much for stopping by. Uh, what is your Twitter handle? 
Uh, my Twitter handle is SIFS uh, or SMB. That's right. So we covered that earlier, SIFS or SMB. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Mark Waldrop for joining us this week. And as always, thanks for listening. I'm not doing what Pete did. I'm not doing bye for now. Okay. That's just wrong. Thanks for listening. Thanks for. I mean, I'll work on it. I'll work on it. I think thanks for listening works. Does it work? Yeah. Short, concise, sweet. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Yeah. Works for me. Sounds great. We I got like an outro. It. Like it? Is it just hey, there we go. Oh yeah. Do we say more stuff? Yeah, probably. So, uh, you guys are flying at the inside. You're gonna get some pretzels at the uh, in, in Berlin. Yeah. Lots of food and beer.